Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, church. We are uh, continuing our series in 2 Peter. So I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we'll be starting in the second part of verse 10, where we went through the first part of verse 10 last week. The Christian life is hard. Uh, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you've probably figured that out and realized that. I think sometimes when we enter the Christian life, we think everything's going to get better and life is just going to be smooth sailing from here. But that's actually not what we find in Scripture, and that's not what we find by experience. Which is why Peter, in chapter 1, has reminded us that... God has already given us through his power everything that we need to live our lives and to pursue godliness. In other words, it all points back to God. He has given us these things. But what we find in chapter 2, if you were here with us last week or uh, even this week, if you weren't here with us last week, these verses, this really hard chapter can quickly turn people off. I feel like this is one of those chapters where people kind of close their ears or they want to skip over the chapter itself. Because Peter uses some really harsh language. It gives us some really harsh implications of what judgment will look like for false teachers. Now, before we're too quick to get turned off, let me say it this way. If I were to go this afternoon on a hike in the gorge, and I took my three boys with me. Now, it's rainy, right? It's muddy. There's landslides. And we're hiking along a little narrow path. And if I see that if one of them takes a one more step, because I've got three, so I've got, you know, I'm going to have to be telling this, but if I see that hopefully just one of them there's, takes one more step, they're going to fall off the cliff, likely to their death, what do you think I am going to do? I'm going to do everything in my power to save them in that moment. I'm going to yell if I need to yell. I'm going to grab them by the back of their shirt if I need to grab them by the back of their shirt. Shoot, I would even grab them by their hair, right? I know that's abuse, but in this case, it's not. Like, they're going to fall or death, and so you're going to grab them, right? I'm going to do everything I can to save them. But in that moment, I wouldn't expect my son to turn back to me and go, Dad, stop! You're being so negative right now. What are you doing? We laugh at that. But no, I would expect my son to be like, Dad, thank you. You saved me. You did whatever it took. To save me. Yet when it comes to scripture, we posture ourselves often the other way. God, what are you doing? That's not loving. That's not caring. But it's like what scripture points to is God did everything and will continue to do everything he can in order to save us. And so our posture should be turning him into thanking him. So I want us to enter into the second part of this chapter with that mindset. Now, Peter's already told us that false teachers have been around since the beginning of the biblical narrative, Satan being the first one. So it's pretty early in the pages of Scripture that we find a false teacher in false teaching. The Apostle Paul actually reminds us in 1 Timothy 4.1. He says, although they frequently appear pious, false teachers are deadly. Their intention is destructive and their teaching is from hell. Now, Peter doesn't hold back. This is one of those chapters where you're like, Peter, why don't you tell us how you really feel? He kind of throws off his glove and he throws all punches. And we find these really difficult verses. 
These aren't verses you're going to see on a coffee mug or sewn on a pillow or in an Instagram post. These aren't the verses that you go around sharing to people as a way of encouraging them. Nonetheless, I believe they're important verses for us to study. So let me pray for us again and that God would speak to us through his word and that we have open ears and open hearts to what he wants to say to us today. God, we come to you once again. We thank you that we can gather as your church, as your bride, albeit imperfect. God, this is a really hard uh, chapter. This is a really difficult chapter. There's some really harsh uh, language, but God, it's in your word, and I believe it's in your word for a purpose. And so, God, that we would um, be warned about the motives of false teachers and about the teachings of false teachers, and then, God, you would help us know how it is to respond, and that even in this, that we can remember the good news, that, God, you did whatever it took, and you will continue to do whatever it takes in order to save us. God, we love you. We thank you. We give this message to you today. Amen. Now, these false teachers aren't going to be easy to recognize. You know, I think oftentimes we think they're going to come in uh, wearing a name tag that says, I am a false teacher, or some kind of mask, or it's going to be really easy to recognize. But no, they're going to come in, they'll be very winsome. They're going to be very likable. Like, they're going to be the, the guy that that are the ladies you pick for your team, right? For playing kickball, you're like, I want them, right? They're winsome, they're, they're likable, they're lovable. They will teach you how to make life easier and better. They may even have a, a teaching that you're like, that's exactly what I've been hoping someone would tell me. That the way that I'm living is okay, and I can continue to live this way. They'll, they'll scratch our itching ears, so to speak. Sounds good. But why is Peter so concerned about these false teachers? Why is it he spends a whole chapter writing about them? Because they're doing great harm to the gospel. They're doing great harm to the church, which is why Peter wants this to serve as a warning to us. So it's really, this is a, this is a warning chapter, right? It starts out chapter one, very positive and saying, pursue godliness, continue to grow in your knowledge and the grace of Christ. He kind of starts there, but then he says, all right, I'm going to come in more of a negative now. Be warned, there are false teachers in your midst, and it's going to be hard to recognize them. So today what we're going to be looking at is further at the false teachers. Uh, Now, believe me, I'm probably more excited than anybody in the room to get through chapter two. (laughs) But we're going to look at these false teachers. We're going to look at their motives, what motivates them. We're going to look at their teachings, and we're going to look at our response, how it is that we respond to false teachers. And so number one, we're going to look at their motives. Now, these false teachers were driven by three different motivators. Arrogance, sensuality, and greed. So the first we're going to look at is they're motivated by arrogance. Let's look at verses 10, uh, second part of verse 10 and verse 11. Bold and willful, also the word arrogant depends on what translation you're looking at. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So Peter's point is that the arrogance of these false teachers is such that they believe that their power and that their authority is so high that they will do even what angels, angelic beings, will not do to heap abuse on celestial beings. Continue in verse 12. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, 
born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as they wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. So Peter compares them to irrational animals. Okay, like if that's not an offense to somebody. Now, irrational animals, like wild animals, they have the appearance of freedom. They're roaming about the woods. They can do whatever they want and prowl whoever they want. And he's saying, but eventually they are captured and killed. And so he's saying this is going to be the same for the false teachers. So what does this mean exactly? God is angry at the suppression of his truth. God doesn't like when his truth is is, is, is taken and, and mixed with false teaching. And so when wrathful Elijah preached in his name, in other words, God's judgment will be severe. And God's judgment will catch up with the false teachers. So they may get away with it for a season, for a time, but not forever. So for a while, they appear like wild animals, roaming wherever they want to roam, but eventually it will catch up to them. And so as Paul writes in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so the false teachers are suffering for the wrong as God has handed them over. Now let's be honest. This is not a great picture so far. Buckle up. It gets worse. We're going to move from their arrogance to their second motivation, sensuality. Let's look at the second part of verse 13 through the first part of verse 14. It says, They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. In other words, these false teachers, they had no shame. They they have no shame in showing their filthy, immoral behavior. And it says they were living in such a way among the church that they're eating and feasting with you. In other words, they are acting like there's nothing wrong. And, and then it's also specifically referring to the Lord's table that we will take at the end of this. Uh, that they, they know that they have this false teaching. They know that they're not in line. Yet they're acting like everything is just a-okay. To the point that their consciences are numb. And so they find pleasure in their immorality as they're living amongst the body of Christ in this way. And so these false teachers were coming in and they're seducing the sheep in the same way that Satan seduced Adam and Eve. If you remember, what did Satan do? He twisted God's word. He started questioning God's word. And he twisted it to the truth to the point that it changed what it meant all together. And that's what the false teachers would do. Once again, it'll sound very, very similar to what you'll hear here. It'll sound very similar to what you read, but they'll start questioning it and twisting it just enough that in the end, it actually means something else entirely. They're going to teach people to continue to live how they want, which if we're honest, that's appealing, right? You continue living how you want. You can, you can add the church and Jesus to your life. So just, you be you. You do you. So it's very appealing. And so those false teachers were we're twisting the truth and, and, and leading the sheep astray. Well, if that wasn't enough, verse 14 tells us their desire for sin was insatiable. Now, I looked up this word just to make sure I was understanding what it meant. It's a desire or a craving that's impossible to satisfy. Have you ever experienced that? 
a craving or a, a desire that's impossible to satisfy. Now, especially when it comes to sex. These false teachers were constantly looking to sexually entice or seduce by taking advantage of women. Right? So, I mean, we would not put up with this in our, our culture, so it's probably not as blatant maybe today, but we still see this happening. This was a big part of their motivation, of this sensuality. And so we see their arrogance, we see their sensuality, and their third motivation was greed. Look at verses 14, uh, last part 14 through verse 16. It says in verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Simply put, false teachers were driven by greed and they knew how to take advantage of people for money. Now, this is probably the clearest example that we see today. This is where we get the idea, we talked about this a little bit Wednesday, this idea of the prosperity gospel. You know, so you, you give so much money, uh, you give specifically to this, this minister or to this ministry and you will get rich. You know, sow your $1,000 seeds. We, and we kind of joked about this Wednesday going like, I need to get better at this messaging. But you sow this and you will be blessed. But in the end, like I get really rich and, and wealthy. Or you pray a certain way and, and specifically with certain teachers in mind. So that's probably the clearest example that we see of this today. But they're motivated by greed. It's a, it's a, a way that they can get wealthy and get rich themselves by taking advantage of the vulnerable sheep. Miguel Nunez, he says, the love of money can make us rationalize our sin. The same can be said of any desire of the flesh. We should keep in mind that sin will take us beyond where we ever intended to go. Sin will keep us away from God longer than we thought. Sin will cost us more than we wanted to pay. We sin on our terms, but we have to come back on God's. And sin begets sin with one sin we tend to cover another sin. And so for us, it may not be as blatant as the love of money. Maybe it is and the greed, but that we all have this, this gravitation, this pull towards sin. And while all of this is true, this is why we look to the cross, where Jesus defeated sin on our behalf with his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, and he triumphed over the powers that work against us so that we no longer have to eternally struggle with those things. Now, in our next two verses, verses 15 and 16, Peter's going to summarize a well-known story that took place back in the Old Testament. And uh, if you want to look this up later, it's Numbers uh, 22 through, I think, 24, maybe 25. And he's, he's using this as a, as a way to explain that these false teachers are on the same path. All right, look at verse 15. He says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So once again, we find the story of Balaam in, in Numbers. Balak was the king of the Moabites and he was afraid of the Jews. And he called on Balaam, a prophet, and Balaam knew the truth of God. But unfortunately, he eventually abandoned the path of righteousness. So one day, Balaam, this prophet, was offered a bribe from Balak to curse Israel. Now, here's the catch. And I'm kind of summarizing this whole two, three chapters of, the new, of Numbers. Balaam had already been told by God not to go with the messengers. So God's already spoken clearly to him. You are not to do this. But Balaam instead said, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. And in the end, he ended up going down the road to see Balak, even though God had told him not to. And why did he do it? 
for selfish gain. He saw where he could, he could fulfill that, that need of his greed and, and get rich. So what's happening here? Well, Balaam started flirting with wrongdoing and he started to rationalize his sin. But I could use this, but it could benefit me. This could make my life and my family situation better. And so just like Balaam, oftentimes we justify our sin by committing another sin. It kind of starts one and then it leads to another. Like, right? You, ever, you, know, you, you get caught in a lie and you end up having to tell another lie to cover up that lie. <laughs> another lie to cover up that lie. And then you find yourself in this web of lies. You're like, I don't know how to get out of this other than maybe just coming clean. And so we see that Balaam, you know, he, he justified one sin by committing another sin. Now, in the account, God uses Balaam's donkey. It's another word for donkey. I'll refrain from using it as much as I thought it'd be funny to use it. To rebuke the prophet. Like, a, a donkey, according to scripture, speaks God's word and God's truth to this prophet. I don't know about you, but that would get my attention. Like, did I just hear that? You'd be like, what did you drink last night? Like, what, what, what are you, what are you, you're losing your mind. But Balaam had lost his mind by justifying his sin to the point that God said, I'm, I'm going to get his attention. His donkey's going to speak to him. And so this is why in Peter, uh, verse 16 of chapter 2 says, Balaam's donkey rebuked the prophet's madness. You've gone mad. You've, you've lost it. So imagine that. A donkey. I don't think if you own a donkey, but maybe a cat or a dog or a fish, or a rabbit. A donkey has more prophetic vision than a prophet of God whose moral compass have been disturbed by his greed for personal gain. A donkey. So Peter's already called the false prophets animals, and now he says, you aren't even like a donkey who God chose to speak through. God can use this, right? People think of donkeys as a dumb animal oftentimes, right? You can, God use a donkey to speak his truth. And so the lesson for us who, who teach or who teach publicly, pretty humbly, we think, don't think too highly of yourself because God can use whatever he wants, including a donkey, to speak his truth and to speak his word. And so we see the motivations of false teachers. They're arrogant, sensuality, and greed. That brings us to point number two, their teaching. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. So first, we find that their teaching is lifeless. Now, the Bible frequently speaks of, of uh, people being dead or alive. In Ephesians, it actually talks about this idea of the walking, walking dead, not the TV show, although it's pretty good imagery. Not referring to one's physical death, but one's spiritual death. As Ephesians 2.1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. This is what Peter says in verse 17 of their teaching. He says, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. False teachers have no living water. What's, what's a spring without water? It's no spring at all, right? If you are looking for water and you're hiking and you're, you're parched and you need it and you get to the spring and it's empty, it does you no good. It says that or they're like a mist. Think about a mist. We get a lot of mist around here. We've had some more than mist this weekend. We got a lot of mist, right? And then a storm wind, and it just blows the mist away. In other words, their teaching's not grounded on anything substantial. It will not last. It'll fall, and then it'll be blown and go away. And what a stark contrast from a God who satisfies every need. Think about Jesus, what he told the Samaritan woman, if you're familiar with that story. In John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus also said in John 7, 38, those who believe in me as the scripture has said will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. So we see the false teacher's teaching is empty. There's nothing to it. There's no water in the spring, but if you come to Jesus, that there's a well overflowing and that it will give you life. Second, their teaching is appealing. Verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And so their, their teaching, while full of error, it's appealing. They're typically loud, they're nice, they're charismatic, and they're persuasive. But when their content of their teaching is compared with the content of God's word, it's full of error. It's not actually saying the same thing. Now, for us, it may not be the preaching like I'm doing this morning. You might think, Matt, you're the only preaching I've ever listened to, and, uh, you know, I, I'll get that on Sundays and then kind of come back to it again. Like, that's fine. Now, if you're like me, you podcast, you listen to a lot of other, but you might say, I don't, I don't listen to a lot of preaching. Well, if you think about it, we have messages being preached to us all day long. Social media, it's probably one of the loudest ones in our lives. All those stories that we're seeing or all that scrolling on Twitter or whatever you do on Facebook these days. Those are messages being preached to you. Netflix, whatever you're choosing to watch, right? There's something that's probably being preached to you. Spotify, especially if the free version. There's all kinds of ads that you have to painfully go through. Political ads, okay? We're in election week, right? Political ads right now. There's a message being preached to us on who not to vote for and who to vote for and vote down this measure or vote yes on this measure because it's going to impact your life. Billboards, school agendas. Our city, there's all kinds of messages being preached to us. And here's the thing, the messages being preached to us are often appealing. They often sound good, and maybe, that, maybe some of them are. But why are they appealing to us? Because they promise us, at least in our flesh, what we want to hear. But frequently, they're contrary to the message of Scripture. And so that's where we have to discern the message we're receiving the message of scripture because some things might sound really really good and that sounds great and then you're like wait a minute as one who's pursuing godliness chapter one this is contrary to what god's word teaches i have to discern this now the second part of verse 18 it says they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping for those who live in error what does this mean this is referring to newer Christians. And we have some of those at Sojourn. As Peter says, be careful because you are, in particular, you are vulnerable. Because you are in this process that we're all in of sanctification, growing more and more like Christ. But very quickly, somebody can come in and can confuse you. And third type of teaching, it's enslaving. Verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 says, they promised them freedom Right? So isn't this odd? There's a promise of freedom to them. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. False teachers were teaching there is no judgment. Live however you want to live. 
continue to live a life of sensual pleasure. But Peter says, you know what happens when you give in and sin time and time again? He says it enslaves. It becomes a bondage to you. It's like putting you in a cage. Have any of you ever watched the movie Flight? No, it was just on Netflix. Just went off on Netflix last week. Um, Denzel Washington was the, was the main actor in that movie. I'd watched it years ago, but um, he in that movie, he's a pilot, and there's a, air, a crash of the plane, um, and it wasn't really the reason that the crash happened, but he was also an alcoholic, and he had, he had drank before the flight and had drank a lot the night before and had done some cocaine and some other things as well. And so in the end, he ends up coming clean when he's put on trial. They had found a way to cover it up. They got the best lawyers. You're good. Just straightforward. Don't go into anything. Don't just, and you are, you're, you're out free. And it, and it kind of goes into this story of like how much he drinks. And that's really a problem. He thinks, no, I'm good. I can, I've got this. Right? And so um, eventually, though, he's on trial. And it's like one of the last questions. And he just breaks. And he just goes, no, we can't blame that person because it was me. I drank those two bottles of alcohol. And I drank this morning. In fact, I'm drunk right now because I have a problem with alcohol. Now, then it fast forward the end of the movie. He's in prison. He had to go, I don't know how many years he was, he was sentenced to prison, but he's meeting with a group of guys. And he says, it was in that moment that I finally felt free when I lost everything. And I went to prison. Sometimes that's what it takes, is losing everything so that we can finally feel free. Because the sin that we turn to time and time again, it will enslave us. Yet the false teachers will tell you, it's okay, continue to embrace it. Whereas we have true freedom in Christ. You see, sin, it deceives. It's going to tell you lies. You're going to lie to yourself. You're going to lie to others. Sin distorts our understanding of life. It makes us believe things that we otherwise would not believe. I don't know, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. Like, I get tripped up all the time. And I find myself justifying things and thinking things and going, all right, do I have to really share this much information or... Can I do this? And, you know, it controls our lives. It'll control your heart and your mind to the point of not letting us rest, which is why we become slaves to it. And that's what I feel like that, that movie, if you go back and watch it, that's what it captures so well, is he thinks he's got it under control, this vice that he keeps turning to. But in the end, he recognizes this is the most bondage I've actually ever been in. And that now by completely recognizing that, and now actually literally going to prison because of my actions, I am now free freer than I've ever been. And that's what Christ offers us, as a way to be free from the sin that enslaves us. Now, Peter closes this section with a very serious warning, if he hasn't given us enough of those yet. So let's look at verses uh, 20 and 21. He says, For if, after they have escaped the defilement of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Peter basically explains that these false teachers have made some type of profession of faith. But based on their actions, they clearly do not believe and follow and have faith. 
One, ver one, one other translation says, knowing the truth only to live in violation of it is worse than living in ignorance of it. So these false teachers knew the truth, yet they choose in ignorance to live and teach a different way from the truth. I mean, think about it. This is the Christian life in a nutshell, like continuing to submit to God and his word. Now, I know people think, oh, pastors disagree with everything that's in here. There's some really hard truths in here that honestly I would change if I were God. There's some things I don't want to submit to. But that's why when I, if I meet with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, I'll say, look, I know it's tough. I'm, I'm there with you. But if I'm pursuing godliness and I'm choosing to submit to God and his word, like what are the implications for this? No, it's not how I would have necessarily written some parts of it. And so it's saying these false teachers, they know the truth, but they choose to live in ignorance of the truth and they lead others away in that. Now, most of us have probably never given a whole lot of thought to this. Okay? And this is where I, if you haven't heard anything else in this message, here are these last couple of, of, of parts here. But according to Scripture, we are actually held accountable to the truth, whether we know it or not. And according to our level of accountability and our future judgment increases with the level of knowledge revealed. So the more you know, it says the more your, 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 your judgment will increase. The more knowledge that you have been given. Now, we live in a land of knowledge. Like, we love knowledge. I mean, I can't tell how many Bibles I own. We have more Bibles and commentaries and books and we're like all the knowledge. So in some ways, I'm like, man, the church in America, I think as a whole, the judgment is going to increase greatly because we know churches are full of people who don't actually follow any of it. But the more knowledge you have, the more you're going to be held accountable to it. So there's some scary implications based on these verses. Someone can come to a true knowledge of Jesus yet become overpowered by the way of the world and choose to live that way versus following Christ. Now, let me hopefully clear up any confusion and the question you might have in your mind right now. Does this mean a Christian can lose their salvation? It's a big question. 1 John 2.19, it describes a group of people who fell away. It says, they were not of us or they would have continued with us. In other words, he's saying... If they were really Christians, and if you're really a Christian, you persevere to the end. I'll, I'll sum it up. Once saved, always saved. So if you're truly saved, you're saved. Right? Like our power and strength is not greater than God's power and strength. So it's not as if they were really Christians and they were really pursuing the Lord and really pursuing godliness, and then they suddenly fell away. But Peter's saying if they don't last, it doesn't matter how much they look like a Christian. They could wear the right outfit, whatever that means. It looks totally different in our context than where I came from. They could pretend to be a Christian. They could even trick others, right? Now, I'm not saying this. I know Ben's a genuine Christian. Like, I have no doubt in my mind. But I know people who've led worship in the past, who to the present day want nothing to do with the God. They had fooled everybody, you know? They had led us to put our hands out and put our hands up and to do these things. And now they themselves want nothing to do with God. I know pastors who have completely walked away. I know people who've been actively involved in church. And so what Peter's saying, it doesn't matter how much you look like it, it doesn't matter how much you pretended, how much you tricked others, it means that they weren't ever actually saved. Now, I'm going to use some language here, and I'm only using it because Peter used it in chapter 1. But this does not mean, Peter isn't teaching that God's elect, read chapter 1, is, can somehow become unelect. Right? You're elected or unelected. And lose your salvation. But what he is teaching is you can be a church member and still not actually follow Christ. He's teaching you can be a pastor who preaches and still not actually genuinely follow Christ. No matter how much you look like it, maybe trick others, 
if you eventually go off and wander away and never repent and truly return back to God, then were you ever really saved? Now, there's a key here. Hopefully you stick with me. To never repent and return. That is the key. Because if you're like me, and you might be thinking this, I'm prone to wonder. I know people once again, you probably don't think that, but there's days I wake up and I'm like, is this real? (laughs) Do I actually believe this book? That this this guy Jesus who was born a baby and lived this perfect life, like it all sounds so crazy and talked through a donkey. Do I actually believe this? So if you're like me, my heart is prone to wonder. And I have seasons in my life where I wonder. But by his grace, the Holy Spirit convicts me in my wondering and I repent and return. So there's a mark of a believer and a non-believer. The mark of a believer is not someone who never walks away. So if you're thinking, man, I'm struggling right now. I'm not sure if I should be in the room. Please don't hear that. The mark of a believer is even in your wondering, you always end up returning. You always have a moment of returning and repentance back to God as you recognize that you started going down your own path. The mark of an unbeliever is one who walks away never to repent and never to return. That they, they walk down this path and they never return back at all. So Peter's talking about people who came to a certain knowledge of Jesus. Like, like what I would say is a saving knowledge. Like they recognize Jesus as this is real. This is the real deal. They recognize who he is, but they never embraced him. They never put their trust in him as saving him because they chose the way that they wanted to live. The way of the, the world. Now this actually gets into blasphemy. I'm just going to mention this briefly. Um, there's so many rabbit trails I could take here and give more messages, but blasphemy is the one unforgivable sin. Talks about this in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 32. You might say, what is blasphemy? I don't think I understood this very well until sometime in the last year myself through the, the help of another pastor. But when you actually do believe in God, you believe that God is who he says he is, you believe in his son, but then you consciously and willfully reject him and refuse to follow him. That is blasphemy. And that's kind of what it's describing here, these false teachers. They recognize who he is, but they choose to not follow him, to follow their own ways, and yet trick others within them. This describes the demons. Like it says the, it says the, fallen, the fallen demons, fallen angels, like they believe God, who God said he was, yet they rebelled against him, rejected him. But even in this, we see God's grace for those who are truly saved. Why? Your salvation is 100% secure. So if you're like, I've given my life to Christ, and I know it's sincere, like, Am I, should I question this? No, your salvation is 100% secure. Because if you could lose your salvation, God, if you could lose your salvation, you could. We could. Right? If you could actually lose it, we would. We would walk out. Like, we would all lose it today. But God won't let us because we are his children. God protects us. He cares for us. And so, yes, it's true. If we reject Jesus, and this is what Peter's telling us. If we reject Jesus, we will face an eternal judgment. But in God's grace, he will do everything short of destroying us to save us. Remember my kid who's falling? I'm going to do everything I can to save my child. And that's what God offers us. And so before we're quick to go, man, God judges. That doesn't seem fair. But God first does everything short of destroying you in order to save you. And break you to bring you back to himself. And if you're not a child of his, it's not too late. But we must revisit verses 21. 20 and 21 as a warning. According to this passage, the more you know about Christ and his way, the more severe will be your judgment for not trusting him. Peter is merely reiterating what Jesus has already said himself about Judas. 
It says in Matthew, if you remember Judas, it's the disciple that was with Jesus and sold him, sold him out for some money. It says it would have been better for him not to have, it would have been better for him to have never been born. It's pretty strong language. Why? Because Judas had spent three years every day with Jesus. And so Matthew 11, 21 and 22, it says it'll be worse for you if, if in the church than for those who have never had the opportunity. Right? We care about missions here. We care about unreached people groups. There's people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. There's people who have never heard the gospel message and that truth. And what this is implying for us here, and do I fully understand it? No, but what it's implying is that the judgment for those who have an opportunity here will be harsher than for those who have never, ever heard. If you choose in the end to the way of the world and path of the world. So Peter finishes with an illustration from Proverbs 26. Look at verse 22, and we'll be done. It says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. In other words, he's already called him donkey. <laughs> now he's talking about dogs and pigs. Then get the picture. Dogs are really nasty in the first century. They're not the cute and cuddly. Like, we literally saw this little toy puppy yesterday. It weighed four pounds. It was so cute. That's not what we're talking about here, right? And this would not be modern day. In the first century, dogs were nasty. They're filthy. They're wild. And a dog can vomit up something and return to its own vomit. Like, right? It'll return to whatever initially made it sick, and it will eat up that vomit. All right? I want you to get the graphic picture here, okay? So it's on purpose. You haven't had lunch yet. So they eat something that makes them sick, and they return to it, and then they eat it again. This is a picture of what sin is in our lives. It taints us. It defiles us. We can clean it up, but then we return to it again. We can continue to return to our nasty filth only to be sick again or to embrace the feast of the gospel. That God is offering us way in Jesus the freedom to get out of the returning to the filth. And so in Christ, there's an opportunity every day for us to return to his ways. Right? It's a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson says. Every day we have an opportunity. His new morning mercies, right? Every day we wake up to new mercies and they're fresh and anew. And so for us to return to his way, to be cleansed and forgiven once again. So once again, it's not saying that we're never wayward. It's not saying we never question. It's not saying we never doubt. Remember that journey that we're on? We might be in a season of darkness, but God's offering us the opportunity every day to return to him, be cleansed again and forgiven once again, which is what we do, what's representative in the communion table. That's why when we take communion, we're being reminded of that. But yet, once again, we're reminded that it was Christ's body who was broken for us and for the sins in our lives and the sins of the world. It was Christ's blood who was shed for us and the sins of the world. And that we are cleansed afresh and anew and that we can go out and walk in that truth every single day. Our third and final point this morning is our response. So our response, so what, are, what are we to do with this? A few things here I've got them written down for you. Is be aware of the presence of false teachers. He says they're always in your midst. And so be mindful of that. The second way that we respond is don't be deceived by the false teaching of false teachers. Maybe easier said than done, but one way to kind of safeguard against that is be constantly in God's word and God's truth and compare the teaching that you're hearing, whether it's a popular teacher. I don't care if they're on a Christian program. 
the words that I say to you. That's why I reference verses. I'm like, go back and look them up. Because for all you know, I threw out a bunch of Matt's language and I just threw some passages to see if you ever looked them up or not. One week I'm going to do that. But look them up. Study God's word and be like, let me compare it. Third is pursue the way of truth and righteousness by growing in the knowledge and grace of Christ. Right? How do we do that? Studying God's word, being in community through the songs that Ben leads us in. Fourth is we repent and return when you become convicted and wonder by reconstructing to Jesus. All right, and that might be a daily thing for us. We gotta, we, our hearts are prone to wonder. And the fifth thing is carry the message of God's mercy and grace and truth to everyone, including those enslaved by false teaching. It's not too late for those who are enslaved by this false teaching. Right? So if you know people who are, who are man, they're, they're going this way, I think that's where we're so careful to go, well, they're finding a different path and that's their truth. But no, like, I think we're going to do everything in our strength and power in a loving way and with mercy and with grace and with truth to say, I'm concerned and here's why. Right now, they may not receive it, but I think we have a responsibility to present it that way. I'm going to finish for us by reading from Jude. Now, Second Peter and Jude are actually pretty similar. Jude's even shorter, so you maybe have wished I'd gone through Jude for a series. It's only one chapter. Um, and so Jude 1, verses 17 through 23 is what Andrea read for us at the beginning. It says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, And the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, show, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I'm going to reread the verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Right? We are not the ones who judge. We're not the ones who come in judgmental. But we are to have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. We, we are to do whatever we can in our strength to say, well, it's because I love you and I care about you. Because I see that this could be the outcome and this could be detrimental. So we're called to go and proclaim this message to all of the world, to our city, to our nation, to our global. And so this morning we'll respond uh, through three ways primarily. We're going to respond through worship. worship worshiping the God, uh, I kind of joked with Ben this week because he does a really good job of picking songs that align with the message. And I was like, do you have any messages about dogs and pigs and donkeys and judge? Like, right? No one writes songs about those things. And so I'm not sure what songs it has other than songs that will, will lift us to look up to, to God, who has provided a way that, yes, there is a judgment, but yet he's doing everything in his strength and power and has by sending his son, Jesus, to give us a way to escape. And so we're going to sing songs of praise and adoration to God as in having an encounter with God. The second way is prayer. And, and I'll probably stand towards the back for the song in between communion and the final song. Just if somebody says, you know, I need, I need prayer. Or maybe it's I'm struggling or maybe it's I'm doubting or I'm this or anything's going on in your life. And, and I know that that can be weird, so don't feel any pressure to do that. And you can talk to me afterwards or you can send an email in or, or however. I just want to make sure that prayer is provided because this is a God's house is to be a house of prayer. So I want to make sure that prayer is always part of what we do and in interceding for others. And then the final way is communion. The, the family meal as we recognize that 
But God, we are at your beck and like. We bring nothing to that table. And so God, we literally lay ourselves before you. And we come to your table to be cleansed yet again as that reminder of what you've already done on our behalf and behalf of the world. And so during this first song, uh, grab your elements and they're on the table over here. And then I will come back up and lead us through the actual taking of communion. And so sojourn, the table is open, prayer is available, time is yours. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.